You know, the last few months, even remotely, I have been happy to remain connected to you uh, by watching Worship Online. I want to take a moment this morning just to say a very special thank you to Lois and Alan, who led the effort to conduct the Jubilee. I think, yes, I think the hardest part of my summer away from you was being gone that weekend. Um, That's a bucket filler for me, and I just thank you so much. You guys did a great job with all the volunteers who helped, and I see many of you in the room. You know, Dr. Don has been leading our staff through a book study by an author named Barbara Brown Taylor, who is an Episcopal priest, who is no longer a parish priest. She wrote a book called An Altar in the World. And I think her point in writing that book was to teach us that we really limit our experience of God. If we only look to see God and find God's presence in the walls of our church. Now, make no mistake about it. I know you have felt God's presence, and so have I, right here in this room as we worship. When we used to worship across the street in the sanctuary, even in the gymnasium on Jubilee Sunday or in the parking lot at the Druid Road campus when we feed hungry people and distribute food and toys and Thanksgiving baskets. But too often, we fail to see God everywhere in the world. Barbara Brown Taylor wants us to remember that if, if we aren't seeing God in the other six days of the week, we're really missing out. And so today, our text that I would like to share with you is uh, excerpts of Psalm 65. Hear the word of the Lord. What joy for those you choose to bring near, those who live in your holy courts. What festivities await us inside your holy temple. You faithfully answer our prayers with awesome deeds, O God our Savior. You are the hope of everyone on earth, even those who sail on distant seas. You formed the mountains by your power and armed yourself with mighty strength. You quieted the raging oceans and their pounding waves and silenced the shouting of the nations. Those who live at the ends of the earth stand in awe of your wonders. From where the sun rises to where it sets, you inspire shouts of joy. You take care of the earth and water it, making it rich and fertile. The river of God has plenty of water. It provides a bountiful harvest of grain, for you have ordered it so. You drench the plowed ground with rain, melting the clods and leveling the ridges. You soften the earth with showers and bless its abundant crops. You crown the year with a bountiful harvest, even the hard pathways overflow with abundance. The grasslands of the wilderness become a lush pasture, and the hillsides blossom with joy. The meadows are clothed with flocks of sheep, and the valleys are carpeted with grain. They all shout and sing for joy. The word of God for the people of God. That psalm, Psalm 65, and the one that was read so beautifully by Duke a few minutes ago, Psalm 19, are known as a group of psalms called the creation psalms. They celebrate Things of this world, matter, 
things made of, of cells and minerals, things that are not necessarily spirit things. They speak of mountains and seas and the sun and the moon and the day and the night and the harvest and the rainfall and the sand and the deserts. They remind us that God's presence can be seen and felt in the glory of all of his creation and on the faces of those of us who were created in God's image. Now, I'm not suggesting, and these psalms aren't trying to teach us, that we should practice a, a faith called pantheism. Pantheism is actually a, um, a, a religion that worships the sun and the moon and the rocks and the earth as though they were God. That is not what we believe as Christians, but we believe that God's presence is manifest in his creation and that God is everywhere, not in, just inside a building we label as a church. So the psalm I just read to you began certainly in the church. It says, What joy for those who live in your holy courts, what festivities await us inside your holy temple. But immediately the psalmist switches to the world outside the church. And we need to see God in those places as well. You know, I prepared this message in a little town where my Pennsylvania home is called Mount Joy, Pennsylvania. What a terrific name for a town, and it really fits. But I learned that I've been very limited in the last four decades when considering God's creation to consist of palm trees and beaches and sands and humidity. I mean, Mount Joy was completely different. It's in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, and I used to drive to church and to visit my family and to the grocery store through rolling hills that were covered with crops. I mean... When I arrived there, the corn was knee-high, and when I left, it was taller than me-high. It was amazing um, to just watch a, a different landscape and a different part of the country where I had never lived before. And quite frankly, it absolutely filled me with delight to watch the corn grow and see the cows and the crops and, and all of that. And it, it reminded me that God manifests himself in so many ways in so many places, and I haven't taken time to see a lot of them. You know, late one afternoon, I was driving through this hilly country, and I looked to my right, and there was an Amish farmer. Um, he was guiding a team of four horses as big as Clydesdales who were pulling what I think was a hay baler. I'm, I'm no farmer. Uh, but this vast field was slowly being harvested and rolls of hay were appearing and a few uh, weeks later I drove by and there was just mountains of hay bales around there but I pulled off the road because the farm, his farm also had a produce stand and there was fresh corn for sale and the fresh corn in Pennsylvania is the best but I really pulled off, I wanted to get the corn but I wanted to watch him without looking like, uh, remember Ava Gabor, the city slicker in Green Acres? Well, th well th that's kind of how I felt. I mean, his 
sweat was pouring off his face. He had his broad-brimmed hat on. His face was furrowed like the ground that he tilled. But in looking at this man, he looked like he was so at peace with his hands in the dirt, with his work before him. Now, this is a guy who has to count on his success coming from there being enough rain and enough sunshine in the right proportions. But when I looked at this farmer, I could see that this was a man who knew that he wasn't working alone. God was there in the dirt, in the straining muscles of the horses, in the dust on the ground from which we come and to which we will return, in the work of the farmer. Our work matters to God. Matter matters to God. Jesus reminds us in the scriptures that we should see God in the work of the farmer. In Mark chapter 4, this is what he said. He said, the kingdom of God is like a farmer who scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, while he's asleep or awake, the seed sprouts and grows, but he does not understand how it happens. The earth produces the crops on its own. First a leaf blade pushes through, then the heads of wheat are formed, and finally the grain ripens. And as soon as the grain is ready, the farmer comes and harvests it with a sickle, for the harvest time has come. You know, today we may understand the scientific processes a little better than people in biblical times. We learn about photosynthesis and how plants grow in botany class and biology class. But the fact is, we make a terrible error if just because we understand a process, we assume that God didn't create it. We don't have to fight between faith and science because everything we understand about science and have learned about science was created by God in the first place. We're fighting about the wrong stuff. And that was just made so evident to me as I gawked in farm country this summer. You see, God is present in the ordinary and extraordinary processes of life in this world. Jesus often uses things that we can touch and see and feel to explain God. Bread and wine and water are outward signs of the inward grace we receive when we celebrate the sacraments. And it's not a mistake that God used these ordinary things to help us receive God's grace and to understand God's abundant love for us. Jesus used Things like shepherds and sheep and fishermen to illustrate for us not only the reminder that God created all of this, but he used them as metaphors to explain our role in the world. You know, imagine what it would be like if we baptized people just using words in a book. Imagine what it would be like if we didn't use water. Water makes up 70% of the earth, and we use it. It's a very ordinary thing, and we use it in baptism. What would a baptismal service be like if when the water splashed, hits the baby's face, and the baby didn't either scream or laugh? We've seen the babies do both. One of my very favorite baptisms was after the water hit the baby, the legs and the arms. You know, he was kicking his legs and arms, and he was held up, and 
quite frankly, that morning, everybody was ready to leave church right then. We had seen God in the presence of that little baby through the use of water. When I looked at the video of the beach baptism, there was water and sun and sand and dripping faces and wet hair and joyful shouts. And all of those are physical things that God uses with us to celebrate this beautiful sacrament we call baptism. And if we couldn't see God in the faces of those people who came up out of the water, then we're just blind. Jesus uses earthy metaphors to call us to lives of discipleship. He told his disciples who were fishermen that they would become fishers of men. He talked about lost sheep needing shepherds. This is what was described in Matthew chapter 9. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He said to his disciples, the harvest is great, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest. Ask him to send more workers into his fields. You know, a few weeks ago, Pastor Don talked about how we could transform our culture by how we, we, we behave out there in the world, how we interact with people outside the church. When we wear Jesus on our sleeves openly and we, we do acts of kindness to people who seemingly don't deserve them, who does that sound like? When we lavishly express our love for our neighbors, especially the ones who are different from us or the ones who don't attend church with us, then we are transforming our culture. And we can do that, but to do that, we have to recognize that those people outside the church and those places where we are outside the church are inhabited by God as well. Our job as disciples is to be fishers of men and women, to be junior shepherds who guide lost sheep to the great shepherd. But it's hard to be a worker in God's harvest if we think that God only hangs out at church. If we sit here and wait for everybody to come streaming through our doors, it's not going to happen. The world has changed. I wish it hadn't, but it has. So we have to be God's disciples out there in the world. But you know, there's another place where we fail to see God, and this is one I really struggle with. I've come to, to see God out there in the world and workplaces and schools and all that. But when I look in the mirror in the morning, I don't always see God in me. You know, we learn about how our body is our temple. Paul talked about that, how our body is a temple that houses the Holy Spirit. And for me, that often results, and maybe for you too, in a reason to chastise myself and say, well, if my body's a temple for the Lord, it shouldn't be carrying this extra weight. I should eat better and I should exercise more to take care of that temple. And it becomes a source of berating ourselves instead of recognizing that God sees us as beautiful lumps of clay into which the Holy Spirit was breathed to give us life. We need to see God within us. 
you know, this has been, been written about for centuries and centuries. One of the early church writers, he was kind of a desert father, a spiritual father in the church, was called Arrhenius. And he wrote a lot about this idea of finding God outside the church, outside the temple. And a, a more modern author named Scott Cairns converted some of Arrhenius' writings into a poem called Capable Flesh. It's so much more eloquent than I am. I'd like you to hear it. But this is what I'm trying to get to about God in us. The tender flesh itself will be found one day, quite surprisingly, to be capable of receiving and, yes, fully capable of embracing the searing energies of God. Go figure. Fear not. For even at its beginning, the humble clay received God's art whereby one part became the eye, another the ear, and yet another this impetuous hand. Therefore the flesh is not to be excluded from the wisdom and the power that now and ever animates all things. His life-giving agency is made perfect, we are told, in weakness, made perfect in the flesh. God is in our weak flesh. You know, there's no denying it. Every one of these imperfect bodies that we find so much fault with eventually fail. They all fail. But even as they fail, God's spirit in us continues to live, enabling us to bless others as our physical capabilities diminish. I have watched members of this congregation whose bodies been broken and battered by disease continue to encourage others and set an example of faithfulness that's been an inspiration to me so many times. I have seen joyful smiles on the faces of some of the saints who have preceded us to their heavenly reward as they were taking their last breath a smooth, serene, calm face, saying, this body might be failing, but the spirit, the spirit is alive in me, and I'm going home to my God. I have seen people, people right here in this room right now, whose mobility has become limited over the years, still show up at every ministry outreach we have, just making sure that we assign them a sit-down job and we always have them. And some of those sit-down jobs are really important. I watched somebody last year at our Thanksgiving food giveaway literally pray for 50 different people who lined up at a table she was sitting at. She couldn't lift boxes. She couldn't walk around. But she prayed for every single person who came to her and wanted a prayer. So why is it so hard for us to believe that God chooses to dwell in these bodies that often disappoint us. The sad truth is some of us never really turn to God to feel his presence until we're in terrible pain. We don't make time in our schedule for God to do the things that draw us close, but when pain strikes or circumstances are rough, then we finally clear time in our busy schedules to turn our teary eyes toward heaven. 
And in those moments of incredible pain, we sometimes have our greatest growth spurts in our spiritual lives. When we simply don't have it in us to cope with our circumstances, we finally pay attention and notice that God is at home with us in our bedroom where our sick bed is. God is in the hospital with us when we visit a loved one who's on their last leg. God is with us as we fill out the application for a job when we suddenly find ourselves unemployed. You know, here at St. Paul, we often take time in our meetings, whether it's the trustees or finance team or SPR or church council or whatever, to um, spend a little time sharing God's sightings. And people share stories like some of the ones I've just been describing to you. But I don't really like that term, God's sighting. Because it seems to imply that God plays this little game of celestial hide-and-seek with us. You know, God's hiding and peeks out. It's like, hi, here I am. Whoops, I see God. It's a God sighting. (laughs) The fact is, that's not how God works. God's not here today and gone tomorrow. God is all around us every day. We don't have to hope for a sneak peek occasionally. What we need to do is open our eyes. We make too many distinctions between the holy and the secular. And we relegate God and God's holiness to the church when really we should see it in everywhere, especially in the faces of other people. God is in the prisons. God is in Pennsylvania cornfields. Thank goodness. God was there as if to say, see what I've created to feed you? See the work of the hands of the folks I created and called to till the soil, plant the seeds, and reap the harvest. God's voice whispers to each of us, saying, I am with you always. My spirit dwells within you. If only you would sit quietly, study my word, listen for my still, small voice. Leave time at the end of your lengthy prayers to sit quietly and listen for my response. And yes, I'm also with you at church on Sunday morning. My prayer for us today is that we will expand our horizons, open our eyes and see God at work in us, through us, and for us. That we would see some of God every time we look in the mirror. We are surrounded by God's sightings right in front of us in the glory of God's creation, in the faces of our neighbors who were also created in God's image even the ones we don't like very much. In the simple acts of kindness we do for others and we see others do for people, we ought to see God. God's not hiding from us or offering only an occasional glimpse of his glory. Lord, give us eyes to see. Amen.